funny. I should have been ner- nervous for the kids, but I'm getting nervous now. Yeah. The kids are tougher. Many people, when they're depressed or grieving, go TV, channel surfing, or bury themselves in a novel. I spent a lot of time this summer, after the death of my son Thomas, on June 1st, surfing Unitarian Universalist sermons on, on YouTube. And I became a, a fan of, of the Reverend Dr. Marlon Lavenhar, Senior Minister of All Souls Universal, Unitarian Church in Tulsa. He reaches deep inside of me. Marlon lost a three-year-old daughter about nine years ago. And this year, in a sermon at the UUA General Assembly, the, the big, it's the, called the Service of the Living Tradition, and it's a big honor to do the sermon. And in, in that sermon, he said, I'm going to admit something. Sometimes, even now, when I'm visiting a person from my congregation who is dying, if it seems appropriate, I'll ask them, when you finally die, if it turns out that there really is heaven on the other side of all this, and you see my little girl Sienna, will you give her a big hug for me and tell her that her mom and brother and I are doing all right and we love her? And I've discovered that it doesn't matter if the person is a humanist, a secular rationalist, a Buddhist, or a theist. There is something in the very humanity of that sincere request from a broken-hearted father. Together with the humility of facing our mortality that allows us to suspend our disbelief. So that we can bathe together in the warmth and tenderness of that deep longing and the love that begged the request. Marlon went on to suggest that many of us have beliefs and practices that we keep closeted from our UU communities for fear, for fear that they'll be labeled ridiculous. He actually talked about one um, long-time member who's a former, former Pentecostal, uh, Pentecostalist, and um, has for a long time held a very humanist kind of belief system and came to him one day and said, I, they told him that he still speaks in tongues occasionally, that it comforts him somehow. And, and that he had not, all these years, he had not been comfortable sharing that with the congregation. Because our churches have no test of faith or belief, we could have an incredible diversity of believers at the table. But my summer of summer surfing has led me to believe that we UUs have become more comfortable talking about the anti-coal petition and the Black Lives Matter rally than the articles of faith that led us to those places, those causes, and that guide our lives. In the weeks and months after the loss of a loved one, it's natural to re-examine one's belief system, hoping to make a case for a continuing connection with the departed. That finding such a connection is perhaps a convenient truth doesn't make it false. 
So I'd like to talk a bit about Thomas and the Unitarian Universalist faith before returning to the subject of closeted beliefs. As Carol and I have read through things Thomas wrote years ago and thought about his life, we've seen suggestions that he sensed he might die young. While still in high school, he ended a Mother's Day poem for Carol with the lines, Mother's love will never leave us, so never will we truly leave her. Sometimes he seemed to be preparing us. Thomas's first tattoo was an outline of the state of Virginia, and then his second was a phrase in Latin on the underside of his right arm, and I don't read Latin, so I'm not going to attempt to, uh, to read it, but I'll, I'll tell you when I get to the, we'll, we'll, we'll get to the, tr- the English translation in a minute. And I have to admit that I probably asked him about a half dozen times for the translation and then promptly forgot it each time he told me. But at the reception after Thomas's memorial service, his high school Latin teacher was eager to put the line into context for Carol and me. He said he understood so much better now after hearing the eulogy why Thomas had that tattoo. It's a famous line from from Virgil's Aeneid that has been much discussed and argued over. Aeneas, the, the, the main character, the hero, the leader of the troops, is control, consoling his troops who have been severely beaten. They have lost many comrades, and Aeneas is urging them on. And here's, here's, here's the quote. Perhaps one day, he tells them, it will be pleasant to remember even these things. Perhaps one day it will be pleasant to remember even these things? I have never lost comrades in war, but I have suffered more than my share of traumas. When I was 25, a dear friend and mentor, Alice Johnson McDonald, was stabbed to death in Trenton hours after she left my apartment in New York City having spent a glorious December weekend with me. When I was 20, when I was 30, terrorists set off a bomb, killing one man and wounding some of my co-workers six stories below me, directly below my office. When I was 37, my cousin Barry shot his parents, my uncle Eddie and Aunt Margaret, to death. When I was 49, cousin Barry hanged himself in his prison cell. When, he was, when I was 58, my brother Ginger suffered a seizure and died in a taxi cab after stubbornly checking himself out of a hospital AMA against medical advice. When I was 64, my sister Marilyn and brother-in-law Alex were killed in an automobile accident. And this year, nine days after my 69th birthday, I lost my son, son Thomas to a skateboarding accident. I can tell you that each one of those events was a great teacher but I can't find one pleasant thing about any of them. Even the passage of 44 years has failed to make Alice's death pleasant. What was Thomas trying to say? He was a studious researcher, so I'm sure he knew the lines that come next, which I did not know. 
which I did not know about until writing this sermon. Virgil says of Aeneas, the hero, the speaker, he feigns hope in his face. He stifles the deep grief in his heart. He feigns hope in his face. He stifles the deep grief in his heart. That Latin phrase was Thomas's sophisticated version of putting on a happy face. Thomas and I didn't have a history of connecting well when he was alive. But at 1.50 a.m. on June 1st, I awoke with a level of anxiety more intense than anything in my memory. I checked the time because I was reluctant to take an anti-anxiety pill too close to when my alarm would go off, but I felt as if I'd have no shot at falling back to sleep if I didn't. That time, 10 minutes before 2 a.m., is the time of death on Thomas's death certificate. It's comforting to me to feel that we were that connected after all. Like many people recovering from tragedies, I wanted to become a better person and make something good come of it. Although Thomas was never a fan of church, I felt called to help make Unitarian Universalism better, as egotistical as that may sound, I, know how important, I knew how important religion was to me, and I wanted to pay it forward to religion. Maybe I couldn't do much, but I would do what I could. So I read, I listened to sermons, I engaged in dialogues, I tried to take a fresh look at this faith, sensing that it was lacking something. As both of our co-ministers, John Manuel and Phyllis Hubble, have said in recent weeks, Many religions have been going through difficult times over the last 15 years or so and need to figure out new ways to reach people and remain relevant. Unitarian Universalism can help so many more people than it does. That subject deserves a sermon of its own but I'll spend a couple of minutes on it. In membership numbers, our faith is stagnant, and the membership increasingly looks more like me than like Eric Rue or Jenna Korf. Old and tired. When the Unitarians and the Universalists merged in 1961, the new combined association had slightly more than 1,000 churches with slightly more than 150,000 members. In 2014, we had slightly more than 1,000 churches with slightly more than 150,000 members. Those are the adult members. At the same time, enrollment in our religious education classes went from 77,546 to 49,991, a decline of 36%. That's what happens when the membership looks like me. Over roughly the same period, the Mormons grew from 2 million to 14 million. U.S. Catholics went from 49 million to 80 million. Southern Baptists from 11 million to 15 million. Meanwhile, the more liberal religions are losing members. 
but I am certain that people have not, not stopped needing us. Phyllis, John, and many other ministers these days point to new ways of communication, text messages, social media, videos, podcasts, and they, they may be part of the answer, but I believe, as I indicated in, in the reading that Tamar helped so well with, that there's a deeper issue. Please understand me that I don't mean to be critical of any individuals here. My remarks are about you use nationwide, and and that includes all of us, including me. We've forgotten that people come to church for spiritual healing, and we make church, church uncomfortable for folks who don't listen to NPR, who don't hop on the liberal political bandwagon du jour, and who just might want to talk about God and saying hello to a three-year-old in heaven or a 29-year-old in the cosmic soup. We're blind to the things we do, the assumptions, the jokes, the snide comments that keep us in our exclusive cocoon. I know a member of the 1% who studied for the UU ministry but feels unwelcome in our churches. Over the years, we've had training programs to help us be more mindful of how we might seem unwelcoming to gays and to people of color. Where are the programs to help us with Republicans, devout theists, the 1%? We love to claim Thomas Jefferson, a great liberal, as one, as one of us, even though he never belonged to a Unitarian church. But I'll bet no one here can name the four U.S. presidents who really were Unitarians. Any volunteers? Who? President. President. John and John Quincy. Well, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Taft. Yeah, oh, yeah, we talk all the time. As a matter of fact, the district is called the Thomas Jefferson, the south of us is called the Thomas Jefferson District. Yeah, we like, to, we like to claim him. And there, it's based on, he did once say that if, if he had to choose, a, he was an Anglican. He did belong to an Anglican church, because everybody did. But he did want, say once, right once, that if he had to choose a church, it would be Unitarian. But he never belonged to a Unitarian church. Um, but yeah, there, there, there were John Adams, John Quincy Adams. Uh, and before I get to, to the one that Carol uh, made reference to the one no one ever I'm sorry what did somebody ask who oh did I say Hoover oh no 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 okay John Adams John Quincy Adams another was Millard Fillmore who supported the compromise of 1850 and he supported Andrew, Andrew Johnson's reconstruction policies His Wikipedia entry says many historians consider him to be one of the ten worst presidents. And then finally, there was William Howard Taft, who who I believe was once president of his congregation in Cincinnati. But he helped conservatives gain gain control of the Republican Party from Theodore Roosevelt. So we, we, we like to look back and see those people who reflect us currently and that's not really, uh, that's not, at least that's not all of our history. We love to look back at all the, ch- the universalist churches 
that believed in universal salvation, including African Americans, without looking back at the many more universalist churches that did not include African Americans in universal salvation. Um, anyway, so that's, 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 that's another hobby horse of mine, and maybe, maybe we'll come back to that in another, in another, I don't want to beat that one to death, because that really isn't the purpose of, of this sermon. Among people who identify as Unitarian Universalists, who identified as Unitarian Universalists in 1990, there were two Democrats for every Republican. 1990, two Democrats for every Republican. In 2008, just 18 years later, the ratio was 11 to 1. 2 to 1 to 11 to 1. Even the proportion of independents shrank in those 18 years, although not by nearly as much. And I don't mean to talk uh, only in political terms, but, and this should not surprise you, it's far easier to find out how many of us are Republicans than to find out how many believe in a God who performs miracles. Those people do exist, but they're closeted. They're even more closeted than the Republicans. The fastest growing religion in the United States is Wicca, which now has about 50,000 more registered members than we do. 20 years ago, uh, the UU Church was an attractive sanctuary for the growing number of Wiccans. Many of them are gone now. Just one example of people who apparently did not find us truly welcoming to all sincerely held belief systems. And as I say, maybe I'll come back to this in a, in a sermon later in the church year. But for now, let me share some of my beliefs so that they won't be closeted and invite you to bring yours out into the open uh, and, and, and hopefully that will invite yours to, I didn't mean right now, but hopefully that will bring, invite you to bring yours out into the open. Since early September, I've been writing daily posts from, in my blog, melsmouth.com, and after a few w weeks, I realized I was living out Thomas's legacy. I, that's what he would have loved to have been able to do with his life. And I hadn't realized it when I got started. But now I often feel him with me as I write. And I tell you, I sometimes sit down and write, and I don't know where it comes from, but it, 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 it comes. I believe, I believe in God and miracles, but not as described in the Bible. I believe that God is a name we give to a force we don't understand, a force that emanates from everything in our world. I believe that as the Buddha seemed to figure out 2,500 years ago, everything is made from the same subatomic particles, which I call cosmic dust. And our cosmic dust particles are forever dancing with each other and flitting from one being to another. I believe that the dancing cosmic dust sometimes creates a means of communication and an energy that results in paranormal activities or what we might call small miracles, like getting a message from a loved one no longer alive. I suspect that quantum entanglement, a phenomenon that has been experimentally confirmed, helps explain the force I'm calling God, but I don't know or care 
whether science will ever understand it. Quantum entanglement is the idea that two particles once linked continue to have an instantaneous relationship no matter how distant they have become from one another. It's the concept that Einstein called spooky science. Another name for that force, I believe, is love. And that brings us to our closing hymn. There is more love somewhere. But I'm going to ask you to sing this one without your hymnals. I'll line the words. They're simple. We're you, so nobody is required to do any of this. But what I'm going to ask you to do is to rise and put your arm around someone. Um, the, the English translation was... Uh, perhaps one day even this will seem pleasant. Yeah. If you, if you uh, can help me pronounce the Latin, I'll show it to you, and you can, we can, I can do it for sec I'll do it for second service, but, yeah. Um, so, okay, so I'm going to ask everybody to stand up, put your arm around somebody, and I'm going to line the words, and we're going to sing them the way they're written, the first four verses, and then I'm going to give you slightly different words for the, for the next, uh, for, as we uh, go through the four verses again. One second, let me get ready. Okay, there is more... <laughs> There is, there is, yeah, we'll have an introduction, but there, the, the, the first, the first stanza.